Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Good afternoon, everyone, and um, welcome to the gallery's lunchtime talk. It's always wonderful to see so many familiar faces and friends and gallery family. So uh, thank you for joining us. I'd like to acknowledge um, that we're holding this talk on Ghana country and to pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. So I'm incredibly delighted to introduce Taryn Gill to you today um, for this lunchtime conversation. Uh, so um, it's, it's wonderful to have Taryn here and for us to be presenting her work Guardians, which uh, was You'll probably remember, many of you will have seen uh, the installation that Taryn was commissioned to create as part of the 2016 Adelaide Biennial Magic Object, which was curated by our very own and much-loved Lisa Slade. So it's, um, so in that, so this is the first time that we've brought it all together once we acquired the work from, from the Biennial that year. So it was the first work of Taryn's to come into the collection and also work that we felt was really a career-defining work in terms of Taryn's work with soft sculpture and you know creating this incredibly resolved installation of nine soft sculpture and a very complex enigmatic and evocative soundscape um, that accompanies the work but first I thought we could um, uh, I'd like to introduce you to, to Taryn um, and to her work but maybe we'll just say hi first hi everybody <laughs> thank you for coming along to the talk <laughs> <laughs> so, ta um, Taryn and I go, go way back in, in a professional uh, sense. Um, I first came across Taryn Gill's work when I moved to Perth to be the curator at the Perth Institute of Contemporary Arts in 2009. But I'll give you a bit of a background to the incredible sort of trajectory and ambitious practice of Taryn Gill. Um, because in the, the 10 years from when she, um, she started uh, studying at Curtin University in Perth, and, um, and, in, and in 10 short years, she worked with, as part of a collaborative duo with uh, Pilar Matadupont, also a Perth-based artist at the time. And they were selected, their work involved uh, uh, photography, a lot of performance, much of the work is inspired by musicals, musical theatres, um, and so they worked on a body of work which then meant that they were shown and selected for Primavera in, at the MCA. They were selected for a survey show called um, Optimism, a survey of Australian art um, at GOMA. Then they were selected to present a new work at the 17th uh, Sydney Biennial, uh, which was incredible for artists in their sort of mid to late 20s to be selected within such a great international context for a new video work there. And then they won the Basil Sellers Award, which was, um, until the Ramsey, was the, um, was the, the you know, one of the, the richest art prizes, a $100,000 art prize for, um, for a video work that they created. So, um, and then... Um, in addition to making video performance and photography installations, uh, Taryn and Pilar also formed uh, a collective um, called Hold Your Horses, where they made um, a, a, you know, a, a full feature, I, I, I don't know if you call them feature lengths, <laughs> but a full musical theater uh, piece 
called Heart of Gold, which was shown at PICA and the Perth Institute of Art in 2009. And that was one of the first times that I came to see their work and really understood that they were working in a space that not many other artists were working in at the time. You know, in the sort of uh, mid to late to 2000s, there was still, you know, uh, a lot of focus on abstraction and, you know, very high concept uh, work, a lot of installations. Um, Taryn and I were discussing this and um, she was saying, you know, when I was at art school, everyone else was like getting the best grades for like gaffer taping chairs together and casting bits of concrete and instead they were making a fully fledged musical theatre piece. <laughs> so, you know, it was a particular context that, you know, the, um, you know, looking at, looking at narrative and drawing from film and theatre and, um, and, and dance, um, you know, was, was quite particular at that time. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more of how you, you know, how, you, you know, your journey into, into art. Okay, so um, I grew up doing dancing, so I did ballet and calisthenics, and I actually did that from when I was five till I was 25. Um, and I met Pilar at Curtin Uni when we were, you know, you know, we were like 19, and she was really into music theatre, so of course we hit it off and we bonded over our love of musicals and started making a... In our third year, our final work was a... I guess what's now called a flash mob. <laughs> so it was basi we basically made a musical come to life in, like, the central business district in Perth. Um, we had a chorus of 30 dancers join us in this singing, dan singing and dancing number. And, you know, over the years we would um, do performances for exhibition openings and, you know, that led us into making, um, documenting on film, making films and also kind of creating tableaus um, as photographs. Yeah. Yeah. And so the musical was their graduation work, which was a work that they made in 2001, and it was based on um, using the, the song by Judy Garland, um, Come On, Get Happy, which was yeah. from... Uh, Summerstock, the Summer, musical. Summerstock, where she was wearing a top hat and a tuxedo and, and hot pants, I think. And, um, but then, and, and to the tune of Come On, Get Happy, but they sort of, you brought it forward um, and all, these dancers were in sort of male drag, but in, in sort of power suits and, you know, business attire and very prim, you know, pumps and with their hair in ponytails. And just out of nowhere, in the middle of the busiest period during a working week on a sort of Wednesday lunchtime, you know, this entire chorus of 30 girls, you know, did this come on, get happy, <laughs> pop-up choreography. And that was their, you know, that was their sort of definitive um, graduation work, which was an incredibly ambitious work for, you know, third, third year art students. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess then we... Um, oh. oh, from from that, you worked on Heart of... Yeah, we decided that we wanted to produce an original music theatre work. So we um, collaborated with Thea Costantino, who's an artist but also an excellent writer. And so while she was developing the script and all of the and writing the songs for Heart of Gold, Pillar and I kind of continued our collaboration, making the Heart of Gold projects, which is our early photography and film work. Um, which became the visual research for the theatre show that we made in 2009. 
and maybe touch on the fact that some of that was around, you know, often there are these sort of uh, fictions or almost in some, time, in some cases they're sci-fi, in other cases they're these trans transgressive approaches to nationalism and you were, with Heart of Gold, you were looking at the, you know, the, the idea of Westralia, is that right? <laughs> That's right. The, the Heart of Gold, the narrative was, it was a family drama set in rural Western Australia and the youngest boy, Angus, had delusions that he was the leader of a seceded Western Australia called Westralia. And there were um, these women buried under the house and he would resurrect them in his kind of delusions as his army, an all-singing, all-dancing army. So we were quite influenced by... Um, the choreography of Busby Berkeley, which um, you probably know is quite, it was influ his choreography was influenced by his experience in World War One, and he kind of transposed the formations um, of the soldiers into his dancing routines. So you've got all those really crazy formations that are often videoed from above and... Yeah, we, we played with that quite a lot um, in different formats, like the gymnasium, um, also Ever Higher. Um, and so gymnasium was the award-winning film, black and white film piece that you, that you and Pilar were awarded the Basil Sellers Art Prize, which was for 10 years a prize which was awarded to new works that responded to the idea of sport. Um, probably many of you know Basil Sellers um, and he, you know, his great love of, of cricket um, and the Sydney Swans, but he also, um, he also supported this incredible prize and, um, and, and that was, a, maybe you can talk a little bit more about gymnasium and then we'll come to the Guardians. Yeah. Sure, so we, we were interested in the idea of kind of unpicking Australian nationalism, sort of making fun of it and, and we connected um, nationalism, we were connecting the military and um, sport in a way, so the idea that, um, you know, on the sporting field there's this legitimised aggression and um, nationalism that kind of comes across and uh, we're interested in the way that um, that the, the connection between the, the Busby Beckley militaristic choreography could be connected with the propaganda like Lenny Riefenstahl made um, for World War II and connecting it to, um, yeah, there's the dance, the military and the sport. There so was sort of using the tropes of propaganda and using those aesthetics to create new, wor new works but also to critique nationalism at the same time or yes. those histories of, of nationalism. Um, and so um, there was, you know, early on when looking at Pilar and Taryn's work, uh, you know, I hadn't really seen anything like it. And so at the time, um, I invited them to to do a major solo survey of all of those works, of the photographs, of um, of you know some of their 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 film their film works. Um, but then we realised that the only way to do a, an exhibition that could really capture um, and also create a type of space where we could show the, the range of interdisciplinary work um, was to create a stadium inside Pika. And Pika's an old school, um, and so the main central space used to be their, um, you know, the, the place where assemblies were held, but it was also their gymnasium historically. So very similar dimensions to where we are now, and with a similar 
minimalist sort of high ceiling. So we turned the, the gallery into a stadium with bleachers, with tiered seating, and um, also we uh, turned it into a cinema. But of course, Pilar and Taryn decided that they were going to make, they wanted to make a whole new work um, and, um, and created this incredible piece, which was a performance and also turned into a film called Ever Higher. And because it was such a, you know, ambitious, uh, you know, project, maybe you can say a little bit more about what that entailed. So we um, commissioned a team of Perth-based cheerleaders to... Called the Perth Angels. Called the Perth Angels, yeah. um, along with a rope aerialist. So um, we arranged to have a rope um, fixed to the 10-metre high ceiling in Pika. and so 17 metres high. Oh, was it 17? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it was terrifying <laughs> every single time she went up there for the performance. It, yeah, it really was um, heart-stopping. She would climb all the way to the top unhook a megaphone and then call um, out to the cheerleaders who would come marching out below and it was a call and response routine so we we drew on military cadences and the cheerleaders with their you know perfect smiles and costumes would chant these um, these um, these lines back to the aerialist who was commanding them so um, yeah it's quite quite creepy, really, and um, yeah, quite a spectacle. We also made this live performance into a film in the Pika space during the exhibition period. Yeah, so it was um, it was it was quite an amazing undertaking having cheerleaders come to the gallery every week, <laughs> perform this incredibly sort of you know um, yeah buoyant but quite aggressive performance, and <laughs> and then also turn the space into into a cinema afterwards. So it was uh, you know. Many people still say it was one of their favourite shows that they that they saw in Pika in that time, um, and uh, and I think uh, you know that was um, yeah it was quite a sort of defining point. But also from that, you know, afterwards you and Pilar decided to that you, you, you that you wanted to explore um, other aspects of your of your practice. Pilar moving more into performance and film, and you with um, moving into because Taryn has a history of sewing her calisthenics costumes and all the beading. If you've ever seen any of those incredible costumes that are required for those performances, they're very, very detailed, almost like sort of um, Brazilian carnavale outfits. They're, you know, so early on you started sewing and you wanted to reconnect with that tactile approach. Um, and that came on the back of um, a project that took um, that took Taryn and a group of incredible artists from WA to the Freud Museum in London as part of a residency. Yeah, so we were really lucky. I mean, at that time I was trying to figure out what it was I wanted to do as a solo artist. I knew I was excited about getting, you know, kind of creating this studio practice so where I could kind of work a bit more intuitively and work with my hands and work with... I'd been making puppets for theatre shows, um, which kind of led me to um, the mediums of foam and fabrics. And then, you know, I started digging out all of my old costumes and, um, you know, that was kind of the way that I came to this this kind of series of works. But the Freud Museum opportunity was amazing. It kind of um, set me on a particular trajectory. I was really fascinated by the way that Freud's um, study was kind of curated in this very theatrical way. He has 
thousands of these incredible antiquities, these kind of magic objects. And um, he, yeah, I, I became really interested in um, psychology and the way that he was connecting the practice of um, psychoanalysis to um, archaeology, by unearthing these objects in the same way he was unearthing memory, repressed memories. Um, and also the studio of Anna Freud in the same museum where she had a loom and she would work with her hands as a way of processing while she was listening to her patients. So, yeah, there was a lot in that residency that um, kind of propelled me forward to make these sewn works. Also, around the same time, I did a residency at... Um, it was through the Australia Council in Tokyo, and that was incredible, just as a, um, a place where I could process everything that I was, um, I don't know, seeing and, and figuring out where I wanted to go as a solo artist. And I became quite obsessed with the Hanwha, which are fourth century um, yeah, tomb ornaments. You can see the dancers here, which um, some of my works in The Guardians are directly in, inspired by. Yeah. So, um, my first solo show as a solo artist was called You'll Be Sorry When I'm Dead. And it was, <laughs> it was at Moana in Perth. And it was, um, I basically made a circle of my own funerary ornaments. So it was like a, a fictional mausoleum for the artist, for, for yourself in a way. Exactly. Yeah, I'd become quite... I don't know, it sounds morbid, but around that time I'd been thinking a lot about death and I was listening to an audio version of um, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker and I was... Um, and he talks about immortality projects and legacy and, and I, I guess I was thinking about what, what I was leaving behind and it kind of made... After seeing these um, funerary objects, it made sense I would make my own. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, um, and some of the, uh, I remember at the, at the time when um, Taryn was working on that exhibition, uh, some of the artists that you were looking to were um, artists like Louise Bourgeois, who herself came from a family of, um, her, her, her parents made tapestries, and so the idea of stitching and sewing and cutting were ways of negotiating her, um, uh, her identity as well. And in, you, you know, I remember that we, we had a discussion around, you know, the Freud Museum in London was Freud, the place where Freud had his last studio. It was where he, he had his, uh, he, he died in, in, in London, in that, in that house in North London, and then his daughter Anna Freud maintained that studio and kept it, um, uh, you know, ke uh, you know, kept everything intact until she passed away in 1984. And so you have two studios: you have the the Freud studios, but then um, on the second floor was Anna Freud's studio, and she became a very famous child psychoanalyst. And, um, and the relationship to listening and, um, and weaving and making with, you know, the handmaid was, was, was a very important part of her, her process around psychoanalysis. And, um, and in many cases, it was also opened up a, a period of psychoanalysis um, uh, connected to Melanie Klein around the idea of lateral approaches to 
psycho to um, you know familial relationships. So looking at your relationships with other people um, and other family members, not just in a hierarchical, top-down sort of from you know um, way of looking at how psychology develops. And so I was just thinking about this as well um, recently with the guardians. And so if we think about the installation in there, many of the touchstones are also um, they're they're they're. In indirect references, but perhaps homages, and in some cases, portraits of of family members, and ways to to remember, um, you know, cer certain family members, um, and and also include self portraits in a way with the blonde top knot. Whenever <laughs> I go in there, I always feel like I'm seeing Taryn in there. So she's always a, a constant presence when when her hair is blonde, not blue or pink. So, but um, but you know that that um, you know coming out of a almost a almost a feminist approach to psychoanalysis was quite important taking from your mother who was a self-taught seamstress but then your grandmother who was a professional seamstress as well yeah yeah absolutely and um yeah i think thinking through all of these things i and, and figuring out who i wanted to be as a solo artist i i did go back to kind of my childhood and and think original interest things that had stayed with me since i was young so things like um, references like The Muppets and Jim Henson's works, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I used to watch every day as a kid, um, <laughs> you know, dance costumes, all of those things um, really, I think I just kind of let loose a bit and let those references come, come back to me. Um, yeah, in combination with, you know, thinking about myself and my family. And, you know, with these works, The Guardians and the works I've been making since, I often use my own face as a reference, even if I'm, I don't know, making a, a portrait of someone else or an animal or I kind of put myself into it in, in that way. They're kind of meditations on who I am and where I'm at. Yeah. And so a lot of the guardians in, you know, they, they I guess, have... Uh, have shape-shifted from when you first went to the Freud Museum, and we circulated a few different um, images of, um, you know, Taryn's drawing practice and, and sketches of, I think at one point you, 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 there was an exhibition that came out of that residency which was called... Um, Australian Artists at the Freud Museum and Internal Difficulty. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's quite long. <laughs> yeah. It is a title I can never remember or retrieve. Um, but, uh, but it was an incredible exhibition which toured around WA. But for that, um, Taryn made 50 individual drawings which were about A3 size. Mm, no, no, they're more like A5. Oh, okay, A5. Small. But there were 50 There's 50, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it was, you know, you almost sort of set yourself the task of drawing um, a particular selection from Freud's studio, from his collection of antiquities, which were housed in a sort of vitrine on his, on his desk and then all around, um, all around his office space. Yeah. And I, so you had access to those. I yeah. did, yeah. While I was there, I was photographing these objects and I, I think as a way of kind of figuring out where I was going to go, um, you know, what I was going to make for this exhibition in response to the museum, it made the most sense to me to, to make little 
drawing studies of, of the objects that I was most drawn to, but then, yeah, then it became, I wanted to make it about the collection and, you know, thinking about Freud, Freud's collection as a portrait of him, a portrait of the collector. So then those drawings kind of became about that. And then I made from those drawings some sculptural works which directly reference the objects as well. And then, yeah, then when it came to making the works for You'll Be Sorry When I'm Dead and The Guardians, it, I, I guess I drew references from the objects in Freud's collection, but then um, I guess expanded or stepped away a little bit and, and drew in my own influences like I was describing before. Yeah. So in the, the Guardians that are beyond this threshold here, um, and you know, there's, there's many references to Oedipus and the riddle, riddle of the Sphinx or Sentinels and you know, um, almost riddles and things that you, you have to uh, um, un unravel or, or, or answer in terms of thinking through, which, which become, I think, sort of metaphors for artistic practice you know, that allow you into another space or to access another space. Um, as well as thinking about that relationship to the afterlife in, in many ways. But you'll recognise from, from today's talk and from seeing some of the images that have circulated, the, the, the Hanuwa, the dancing figures that would often protect a, um, a burial mound. They come from Japan and in the gallery we have our own Hanuwa dog, a 6th century Japanese um, tomb guardian from, um, that's in gallery 16. Um, and, you know, there's uh, a, a sphinx as well that, that you've created, a, a self-portrait. There are two totems almost of three heads that are double-faced, um, almost Janus figures that look um, backwards and forwards. Um, and one side from, um, on the left from the matrilineal side from... Um, Taran's family and on the other side from the patriarchal side and uh, and then there's references to panthers which you know Karen uh, Taran's cat cat Stevens um, <laughs> looms large and and some of the audio I think is interesting to talk about before we let you go and well not let you go in the before you you um, you go in and, and spend some more time with the work but I think um, what I found really exciting about this work was the way that you brought music and sound into that space um, so that there's quite a complex uh, soundscape and in some cases if you get up very closely you can hear the sound of sounds like clicking but actually you realize it's the sound of Taran tap dancing so some of some of them speak through very <laughs> interesting uh, mediums and in other cases there are direct recordings of Taran's cat um, in other cases, there are theremins, um, which, are, which have been, you can hear the theremin now um, at the moment. And there's the speak and spell, you know, the little machine that you ha we had when we were a kid to learn how to spell. So there's two, the dancing figures speak back and forth in um, voices which are made from deconstructed speak and spell sounds. Yeah, I think, you know, I worked with Tom Hogan, who's a Sydney sound designer. He often does work for um, theatre. And um, so I'd made these sculptures and um, I, yeah, sat down with him and kind of described what sort of voice I wanted each one to have. And yeah, we kind of generated ideas together and then he, yeah, made, it come to, made them come to life for me, which is, yeah, incredible. Yeah, I think lighting and sound, because of my theatre background, it's always, um, I don't know, I feel like it's really important and it, it's this way that you can, I don't know, I think be transported into another place. Yeah. 
And the, they absolutely do that, which you'll find when you're in the inner circle of the Guardians, which we encourage you to spend time alone and probably because you won't all be able to fit in there right now. But um, I thought this might be a good opportunity to thank Taryn, but also to open up to, um, to, to some questions as well while, we, while we're lucky to have Taryn in town from, from Perth. So for those of you who have seen the, um, um, have spent some time in there before, um, or if you have any questions from, for Taryn, um, now's your chance. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm, the, the question is, was I supported, or were, were Pillar and I supported in our ambition to make a musical in third year at art school or, or not? And we, there were two lecturers that were incredibly supportive and that's how we made it happen. Because at the time, um, well, we, we had to approach Central Park, which was the, you know, the park where the building was, and there was this incredible, incredibly huge public liability insurance that we needed to secure to do a, a flash mob through the... Yeah, anyway, um, Ted Snell, who was the head of the school at the time, he made it happen for us, which is incredible. And Ben Joel, we were in the painting department, and he... He also was incredibly supportive and, and excited about the idea. But you're right, no one else at the art school was making anything so uncool. Everyone was, I don't know, it was, it was definitely... We didn't really have anyone above us or, you know, there was no one around that we knew that was making work like that. It was more just that it made perfect sense to us because that was our childhood and that's, that's what we knew. Um, you know, all of the work I made through art school really was documenting my life doing calisthenics and dance. You know, I would take photographs backstage or um, of our rehearsals and, you know, made work about that because that's really all I did aside from go to school or go to art school. But, yeah, it, yeah, thanks. But I think... Um you know, the, the impact of um, being in Perth and with WAPA, the West Australian Performing Arts Academy, I think has a huge impact on the ability to work with um, uh, musicians, chore you know, choreographers, um, and, and I noticed over that, you know, over that period, there were a lot of artists who were working in a very interdisciplinary way um, later as, as a result, you know, once you set that, that in motion. <laughs> Yeah, I think, yeah, it was great because once we started um, making performance work after uni, we did make a connection with WAPA. Pillar studied um, a certificate in music theatre and so instantly she had this full network of singers and dancers and, yeah, we kind of moved forward in that way. But in the beginning, like our musical in Central Park, my auntie and uncle and nana and mum and sister and brother-in-law and my partner's fa whole family, like, we just made numbers up with family and I was teaching very basic, you know, well, I was teaching choreography for, to people that didn't know how to dance, so, I don't know, that was its own fun thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about what's coming up for you? Yes, so, um, 
I have a residency in Ubud, which I'm very excited about. I've been learning... In Indonesia, in, in Ubud? Yeah, yeah, sorry, in Indonesia. I've been... Um, my partner's... In Bali. A, yeah. In Bali. My partner's a woodworker, and he's been teaching me to carve wood. So I'm interested in making wooden components for my sculptures. So um, we're going to go together and undertake um, mask carving workshops, which is really exciting. Um, I'm working on a theatre show called Unheimlich, um, and that is, it's been a slow development. We're doing another visual development this year. It's basically um, bringing my sculptural work to life. So I've been making masks and props for performers to inhabit. Yeah, so I think those are the key things size. this year. Yeah. They're life-size, so yeah, big masks. Um, and yeah, there's, a, there's a, a character in the show which is a domestic cat who's also a sphinx, who's also kind of like a Cheshire cat character. So there's different variations of, of that character. Like one is a, more like a sculptural cat on a plinth. One is like a floating head that a puppeteer operates and the other is worn. So I'm actually really lucky. I've got a mentor at from Whopper, who's his Andy Cross, who's the head of props, and um, he has been giving me basically lessons in how to make the things I make more wearable and durable. So yeah, that's really exciting. So I've been slowly working on that. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you so much, Taryn, for sharing so much and for bringing bringing this work to life in so many different ways. Well, thank and, you, Lee. Um, I really appreciate thank it. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much.